You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And as we come to our text this morning, let's, let's spend a few minutes remembering both why John wrote his gospel, for every human writer had a purpose, and where we have been thus far. Further on in his gospel in John 19.31, We read that John wrote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing, have life in His name. We should hope to walk away further strengthened in this purpose whenever we come to John's gospel. And last week, Pastor Adam taught John 15, 12 through 17, where Jesus Christ is continuing His discourse with the disciples and leaving them with this final commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Christ goes on further to declare that He has chosen these disciples and called them friends. And they are His friends if they do what He commands. In verse 15, He declares them friends as well because He is telling them what the Father is doing. We are reminded that we don't obey to become friends of Christ, but rather because He called us friends, we obey. And we will obey Christ's commands because the Holy Spirit makes us able to by making us sons of God and thus co-heirs with Christ. And we will examine this in greater detail today. And remember that Christ has been talking to the disciples since chapter 13, where he gives them this purpose in talking to them in chapter 13, 19. He says, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does, you may know that I am he. Therefore, we can see much of this talking has been preparing the disciples. And this theme continues in our passage today. So we come to this passage after the passing of the celebration of Christmas, and we're looking forward to Easter, just as it appears Jesus Christ was. He is preparing them. And before we go through our passage, I want us to remember from John 1, 9 through 13, it's the third verse I'm asking you to remember, that he came to his own Israel, and they didn't know him. Then he did come to those, sorry, then those who did know him became children of God, a new identity. And also remember, who is Christ addressing in our passage today? He's addressing the disciples, some of whom would go on to write portions of the New Testament. And these words today are also for the church as well. And lastly, let us hold in our minds Christ's purpose in speaking this passage today. Chapter 16, verse 1, These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. So our text opens with the proclamation in verses 18 through 19 that, If the world hates you, you know that it hated Christ, the Son of God, before it hated you. And if you were of the world, you would be loved by it. Yet you aren't, because I chose you out of the world. Remember, this is in great contrast to our previous passage where he commands them to love one another. So Christ commands the church to love the church and now prepares them for when the world will hate them. As with many other statements, this identifies the disciples with Christ. Just two verses ago in verse 16, Christ makes the same statement, that He chose them and appointed that they would bear fruit by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John writes further on this topic in his first, cha- first letter, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, saying, the world doesn't know us because we are children of God. And when Christ reappears in glory, we will be like Him. Church, we will be hated because we are chosen of Christ. The world hated him, and because of him, the world will hate us. 
And verse 20 reminds the disciples, as is often God's exhortation to remember. Remember. As these verses in chapter 15 are much preparation for the big news in chapter 16, like God was so often to do with Israel, He exhorts them to remember. Literally, recall what I have said in the past. I am building on it. Christ brings to their mind from chapter 13, verse 16, a slave is not greater than his master. In reference when he had just washed the feet and right before Judas betrayed him. Christ had just served them, though he is their master, and was just going to be severely persecuted by a close friend. Remember, though, in a different chapter, this is all the same discourse from Christ to the disciples. And further, as Christ was persecuted, they shall be as well. And so Christ also emboldens them, saying, If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And though this isn't the direct focus of our time today, some of these men would go on to write much of what the early church would immediately accept as God's word. And what we call today the New Testament. When we read the New Testament today and obey it as from Christ, this declaration by Christ is fulfilled. Christ is the identity of the believer chosen of God, both in persecution and in truth. And verse 21 builds on the identification of the believer that not only will you be persecuted for my name's sake, but it is assuredly because they do not know God. As you are mine and are now identified by me, they will do these things to you. If they knew God, they would know God in you, and you wouldn't, and they wouldn't do these things to you. Yet because they neither know know God nor recognize Him in you, they do these things. It will become apparent in later texts, but we must ask, who are they in this context? We must infer from Christ's language that these are those who, however incorrectly, suppose that they do know God. Else this wouldn't be such an accusation. It's a mere statement of contrast for someone who did think they know God and therefore rejected Christ. And verse 23 makes this plain again. He who hates me, hates God. He who hates Christ, hates God. He who he supposes to know. In such the same way, Paul supposed he knew God and thus did what he did to believers. And more on this in chapter 16, verse 2. Additionally, we are reminded of the very context of Christ's coming to us. He was sent of God. Verses 22 and 24, Christ's plain, is Christ's plain claim, illustrating that He came and did and said only the things that God could say and do. We are surely reminded of Christ's earlier words to the same effect in chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works. And I want you to see two significant parts in this text. First, they would not have sin. I think I didn't skip something. Yeah. Should we understand from this that those who rejected Christ are without sin before rejecting Him? We do well to remember that we always take Scripture with Scripture to understand a text. And I think we can easily assert with much scriptural backing in the whole testimony of the church that we are born with original sin, marring our every thought, will, and deed. Yet what do we make of this? He says they would be without sin. 
Yet the distinction lies with conscious sin. As an illustration, it's surely wrong for a brother to steal from a brother even before you tell him it is wrong to steal from his brother. And similarly, even though the Ten Commandments had not been given, formulating murder as against God, Cain knew what he did was wrong. Therefore, when the child steals again after consciously knowing it is wrong, or David murders Uriah after knowing it is wrong, they are without excuse doubly. Both the law written in the heart in Eden and the law written on stone convict. The second thing I want you to see is the inclusion of both words and works. Many can quote Scripture and even with much conviction, but who can do this and the works that only God can do? Moses brought the words of God to Pharaoh, but God also brought His works to confirm His power and might in the face of a heart of stone. Either way, men are without excuse. And according to Romans chapter 1, 18-21, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And doubly without excuse for those who have seen and beheld the Son of God. They who hate Christ are further confirmed to not know God, as we remember when Christ proclaimed in John 10, 24-38, that His sheep will know His voice, His words, and that He does the works of God, His Father. Believe in the works that you may know that God is in Christ. And when Christ said this to the Jews, how did they respond? They picked up stones to kill Him because they didn't know God. And this leads us to verse 25 which comes from Psalm 35:19 and 69:4 where David laments that he is hated without cause and actually must make restitution for that which he didn't steal. This statement by Christ is both comforting and a burning accusation to those who hate him. It is comforting because it is the refrain of Christ thus far to say remember and when he hearkens back to the Psalms written long before this time, he says, remember, none of this is a surprise. The burning accusation is when Christ is bringing those who hated David as Saul hated David and those who hate him now into one category, one lineage, one great family descending from, their, from the same family tree, their father, the devil, who has hated the Son of God from the beginning. Remember, David is the earthly lineage to which Son of God comes as a man into. The statement of Christ is a burning accusation. Hear this. As the godless hated David, who prophesied my coming, so the godless hate me now when I come. And now we come to a great turning point in Christ's words. He has been building this great case. You will be hated and persecuted by those who think they know God, but don't. And this was foretold. However, not only was this foretold, but something is about to change. You see, up to, these point, up to this point in all these verses, Christ employed many uses of phrases in the past tense. He said, remember, I have chosen. 
they have done this. If I had not done. But now he says, when the helper comes. Let us think about being a disciple hearing this. All of these things Christ has recalled to memory, assuring them that persecution and hatred will come. And then he says, when the helper comes. Verses 26 and 27 is unquestionably a beautiful depiction of the Holy Trinity. The Spirit who is sent from the Father by the Son will testify of the Son to those whom the Son has chosen. Yet this claim from Christ indicates that Christ will not be present by saying, will testify about me, and Him saying, whom I will send to you. Undoubtedly, this must, begin, must be the beginning of the disciples wondering, Christ will still be with us, right? So why would we need the Holy Spirit to testify of Him? Though this may seem a surprise, this isn't the first time Christ has mentioned the Helper, nor what the Helper will do for the chosen. In John 14, 16, Christ declares the Spirit of truth will be with you forever. In John 14, 26, Christ declares the Helper will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Though let us ponder for a moment, why did Christ say He will testify about me? How will they recognize this Spirit Christ has repeatedly mentioned? 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. So how will He, the Holy Spirit, testify? The Spirit will testify as of our adoption as sons of God with the words of Christ given by the Father. Remember, other spirits had testified and thus revealed their identity, hadn't they? Remember the spirits Jesus removed from the demoniac into the pigs in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Even these rebellious spirits could only but testify to what is true. He is the son of God, though they hated it. The Holy Spirit from God will testify of Christ in us as well to the glory of God. And so we may summarize these verses in chapter 15 with all of this. All what Christ said was to fulfill the word, they hated me without cause. And the one who inspired the word, the Holy Spirit, will come and testify about me. And this won't be foreign to you, because what he'll testify, you have heard from me from the beginning. In chapter 16, verse 1, as we recall, is Christ's purpose in speaking to the disciples. I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. As we have covered, Christ speaking leaves those who heard him doubly without excuse for rejecting him, and the same speaking keeps the believers from stumbling. How majestic. This is similar to Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 saying, For we are the aroma of Christ to a God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. We will revisit this idea in stumbling in greater application, but how majestic is Christ's Word holding all things together? Again, Christ uses the future tense, they will, and as we mentioned earlier, chapter 16, verse 2 shows us that those who hate Christ are those who suppose themselves to know God, and in their hatred suppose they are offering service to God. And we also see outcasts from synagogue, and will kill you for God, both speaking to losing your cultural religious identity and your very life. This is like Paul killing Stephen as a service for God. 
And thus, because Stephen knew God and had the Holy Spirit, he can look at them who don't know God and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The disciples will lose their identity in this world, but Christ gives you a new and better one. 16.3 is a continuation of the refrain, they don't know God, and thus they do these things as a parallel to 15.21. We should remember Christ's scathing words to the Pharisees in John 8.42-47, where Christ says the same things. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What a contrast to verse 4. Those who hate Jesus are not of God, but Christ chose these men and spoke to these men to prepare them for when their hour comes. Again, Christ exhorts in verse 4 them to remember. And if we look rightly at Israel and their wandering, or even in the promised land, One of their most grievous sins is forgetting the Lord God and what He had done for Israel. Listen to Judges 8, 33-34. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Also, let us remember that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind what Christ has said to them. Now we begin to understand Christ's word and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the rebirth will help them to remember and keep them from stumbling. Verse 6 paints the very picture of sorrow that we will examine in application. Many times before this, a disciple had asked where he is going or if they could come, but now they sit enveloped in silence and in sorrow. In verse 7 is perhaps the greatest irony of all. Only if Christ leaves will you get God's best. How shocking this must have been to them. Somehow this Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot see, in contrast to whom the world can see, will be to our advantage. The disciples must have remembered the healings, the miraculously feeding thousands, boatloads of fish, and supposed that these are their greatest good. But no, their biggest problem, and indeed our biggest problem, and the world's biggest problem, is that without the Holy Spirit, you are of your father, the devil. You must be born again. Your biggest problem and your condemnation of original sin. So we need an original birth, and this is our greatest good. And so, from this, we must pose two questions for our examination today. And the first is, The Lord Jesus Christ was without cause hated for His words and works which testified of God. And He has given us His Spirit so that we may be born of God. And thus our worship of God because of Christ will be hated by the world. But if our words and our works aren't hated by the world, 
whose father is the devil, are we in Christ. In the second, if we will be hated because we are born of God, do we have God's best who live in the final hour? And now for the first question, if our adoption as sons of God isn't hated, are we in Christ? He said you will be hated and persecuted because he was hated and persecuted. He told us, remember, I told you these things when this happens to those who are mine, who are in me. Thus, we must understand that those who are not in Christ, this will not happen to. So we understand that those who are in Christ will be hated because of Christ. However, we are hated for being a Christian, for being of Christ, not an evildoer, as Peter writes all throughout his epistle. But what will you be hated for? Brothers and sisters, Christ was hated because the cross is offensive. The cross brings salvation from sin before a holy God. John 7, 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus said that we would give testimony in accordance with the Spirit's testimony. In verses 26 and 27, And thus the Spirit in us would also testify that the world's deeds are evil. We will be hated because of Christ, because the Son of God didn't appear to make everyone happy or teach us to be nice or provide a touching scene for a Christmas play or provide a powerless, moralistic impulse. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, which are lawlessness. He appeared to take away the bondage of lawlessness upon us. 1 John 3.8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Church, the world hates this, because its only salvation rightly testifies of its desperate need of salvation. Christ came to war against our bondage to sin and to make us sons of God. So if we find ourselves in line with and celebrating the world's celebration of sin, we must rightly ask ourselves, do we celebrate what the Son of God came to destroy? Or do we celebrate what destroys our relationship with God and rightly condemns us apart from Christ? Let it not be so. We will be hated both for our hatred of sin and our love of God. Even the saints sweetly praising God sours in the ear of those who hate God. Our affections now rightly oriented to God are sickness in the ears of those who hate God. You may imagine the unrepentant heart says this, these affections for God must surely be disordered. And so says the devil. Yet we have an unearthly affection for our Father in heaven to which the serpent responded to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Now, surely there are some questions regarding this understanding. First, why don't they hate the message only, but they also hate the messenger? Christ said that their father is the devil who hates redemption because he can't gain it for himself and that we are of God. And again, we can settle this point simply with Christ's words alone. Jesus was hated, and so we will be hated. And second, we must ask then, why does the world rage against its own salvation? Remember John 7, 7. 
They hated me because what I said about them was true, that their works were evil. Again, it is because something that needs salvation is something that is in a desperate condition. Further, as is plain in Scripture, we didn't know we needed salvation. It was God's kindness to open our eyes. Thus we must ask, do we rage against our own salvation? Do we rage against the conviction of sin within us? Brothers and sisters, let us not reject the peace that the turmoil of repentance brings. God will not reject a broken and contrite heart, nor does He despise the tears of one who is grieved over their sin before Him. Just like Pastor Adam preached a few weeks ago, God will not break a bruised reed. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ. Rejoice, your reward in heaven is great. You have been treated how the prophets used to be treated. And here is one last question for us to examine on this subject. Christ said we, were, we will be hated. Yet what if we're loved by the world? Or in Christ's words in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Brothers and sisters, the false prophets were treated well because they spoke lies while claiming to speak of God. And the prophets were speaking, were persecuted because they spoke the truth of God. So do we want friendship with the world or friendship with God? James 4.4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is being an enemy of God? We don't celebrate the sin the world says is good. For Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And here's an objection. But I thought we were to be at peace with the world. True. True. We are peaceful people carrying in ourselves the greatest peace from our greatest turmoil, we have peace with God because of Christ's sacrifice for us. This peace radiates into our every thought, word, and deed. We have peace amidst workplace competition because we're born of God. We have peace amidst uncertainty because we know God is sovereign over every wave and storm. And we have peace and victory because we don't place our faith in chariots or bank accounts or personal accomplishment but in God who makes all to stand or fall. We have peace in suffering because our Savior suffered in Him without sin or stain. We have peace when sinned against because a great debt has been paid on our behalf and thus we give forgiveness. We have peace when we have sinned because we know what it means to repent and to grieve for sin and cling to the sure hope of forgiveness. And we have peace instead of holding a grudge. We have peace because we are born of God. And this peace is so evident in the church who is bought by Christ. But herein lies the contrast. Though we may be peaceful, the world will still hate our peace with God. And as you are being a peacemaker, as much as it depends on you, those who have enmity with God will hate you for your message of peace. We are ambassadors for Christ God making His appeal through us. 
And when we say peace, peace, yet the terms of the peace mean we must accept the condition we are saved from. Brothers and sisters, some the Holy Spirit will open the heart at to this offer, and others will not. If they hate Christ, they will hate us. And another objection, I want to be authentic with the world in my life, not putting on a show. True, we don't want to appear as whitewashed tombs, the outside clean, yet the inside dead. Truly, we don't want to show ourselves as free from staying outwardly, yet loving sin inwardly, for God knows our hearts. We are all sinful before a holy God. However, the answer to this is that we struggle not with sin, but we struggle against sin. Brothers and sisters, we may have some small accounting of our own sin, but we have a full accounting of its payment on the cross. We are authentic with the world as we appeal to them to cling to Christ in repentance for righteousness as we have done. Titus 3, 3-7 says, We were once enslaved, but we are no longer enslaved in sin. First Peter says that we are a holy nation to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His glorious light. Christ was tempted in our every way and yet was without sin. He didn't need to know sin's stain in order to be our high priest. And we may know the scar of sin, Yet a scar is in the past. We war against sin. We don't identify with a sin. And there is no comfort on earth to be found in solidarity over a shared sin nature. But there is eternal comfort in solidarity over our shared glorious Savior. Church, let us receive the hatred of the world like the apostles did in Acts who rejoiced with much singing and dancing that they were found faithful to suffer for the name of God, the name of the Son of God. When we are hated for Christ's sake, we rejoice because we know we are of Him. And let us leave this subject with this assurance from 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And now we move on to the second question for our examination. If we are hated because we are born of God, do we who live in the final hour have God's best? Remember the purpose that He spoke to keep you from stumbling. Chapter 16, verse 1. Yet what is stumbling? He warned them in the later verses that they will be ostracized and killed for being in Christ so we can derive a suitable definition for stumbling by looking at what He told them they would be protected against. And what is our innate response to ostracizing and threats of death? 
possibly, do I really believe what I'm being persecuted for? Sometimes the threat of ostracizing and death actually functions to keep us from stumbling. This is the good function of government, hopefully providing a credible threat to discourage sin. Yet this isn't what we see here, is it? So we might say, if His Word keeps us from stumbling, it must be in the face of threats to stop believing. So stumbling would at least look like falling away, recanting, returning to your old ways. If they kicked them out of synagogue, then stumbling might look like returning to Judaism and thus rejecting Christ. We may then rightfully suppose, in what way would we stumble today? Think of the threats against being in Christ. This world would seem nice and accepting, no celebrating to all viewpoints about everything, such that the only thing that is true is that we are certain that nothing is true. And also Romans 1.16 says, I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So why would we need to be unashamed of good news before a sinful world? Let us rightly be convinced that the good news we speak of is good because we accept the horribly bad news before it. We are condemned by our sin before a holy and righteous God, and His wrath is just against our rebellious sin. This is a state of all mankind apart from the saving, regenerating, totally sufficient work of Christ and His birth, life, death, resurrection, and reign at the right hand of God. And if we don't have a proper hold on the sinfulness of man before God, then we won't understand the good news. Further, if we don't want to be hated by the world, we will strip the good news of its truth and thus stumble. Church, the good news is good because it's true. Stripping the gospel of the bad news that precedes it is good like a pillow but not good like a mighty fortress. His word keeps us from stumbling. Church, the world wants us to celebrate its sin and thus stumble under its pressure. As we've discussed, they hated Christ because his light revealed that their deeds were evil, and they hated Christ because they hate God. Think of our time. Don't we see this all around us? The disastrous Respect for Marriage bill has been signed into law, yet is this law respecting marriage or redefining it? And further, is it merely redefining it or is it mandating that all abide by its definition? What a travesty to take God's plan for marriage, evident in His Word and in nature, and so politely and with much applause and supposed kindness make marriage His creation for the flourishing of man to be now an affront to God. We also see it in the sexual revolution making ground all around us. We are told not only to tolerate the travesty of so-called same-sex marriage and the whole agenda, but we are also told to change our language to further accommodate it. Brothers and sisters, it is all around us, pressuring us to conform to the image of the world, yet the Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ. A man cannot have a husband, for that word is God's. And a woman cannot have a wife, for that word is God's. A man cannot be a woman, for he made them male and female. These things are clear and evident in God's word and good creation in general church. And our refusal to celebrate sin 
we, with a view of eternity, call the world to repent and cling to Christ, not to rebellion. What is our response, though? The promise is that Christ's word keeps us from stumbling in the face of mounting pressure to recant our adoption as sons of God through the life, resurrection, ascension of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We may be stretched and pushed and marginalized for Christ's sake and misstep along the way. We meet this with sorrow for repentance, trusting in our God. Yet he promises we won't stumble and lose what he purchased. Church, if Christ purchased you, his blood isn't only partially effective at saving you. It isn't somewhat adequate at making you righteous before God, nor somewhat adequate at strengthening you in the face of temptation to recant. Nor is Christ's high priestly intercession before God imperfect. Christ is at the right hand of the Father, appealing to His sacrifice for those whom He purchased. He is Lord of all, King of kings, Prince of peace, and what He said about those whom He bought and for those whom He bought stands. Hear this from 1 Peter 5, 8-11. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood who are out throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, hear this, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And further, His Holy Spirit will give us what we should say when we are placed before courts and kings and co-workers and neighbors for our faith. We may suppose for a moment that Christ's physical presence kept them from stumbling, but did it. Peter denied Him, Judas Iscariot betrayed Him, and many else deserted Him. And again, these things He said to keep them from stumbling, yet They bring sorrow in verse 6. Why? Sorrow because they don't believe Him. Verses 26 and 27 says about the Helper, He will send, yet they think Christ's presence is better than the Helper. Therefore they and we have sorrow because we think Christ's presence is better than the Holy Spirit indwelling. Remember, these disciples were with him for three years, and yet they still harbored some unbelief in him. Remember when he was crucified, what did they do? They went into hiding, supposing all of it to be over, supposing they are sheep without a shepherd. They also had sorrow because they thought Christ's physical presence is better than being born again. And like we have said before, Being born again solves our biggest problem and thus gives us our most exhilarating right to be sons of God and heirs with Christ. And so, in this final hour, His Word keeps us from stumbling. But how? By the power of the Holy Spirit, making us born of God. The Holy Spirit speaks the words of God. Remember, Christ said the Helper will testify to us of Christ. The Holy Spirit signifies us as children of God and thus heirs with Christ. That's incredible. 
So we must ask, do we have God's best with the Spirit? How? Church, those who are here and who are believers in Christ's death and resurrection, making a perfect righteousness for your soul before a holy God, church, we are born of God. And there are two markers of being born of God. 1 John 3 says, we hate lawlessness and love righteousness, and we love one another. This carries significant eternity-altering weight and significance. Where we are going and how we live is dependent on who we are, and who we are is dependent on whose we are first. Here, 1 John 5, 1-4. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever is born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. His word abides in us, overcoming the world and its temptations and abuses toward us. Here, 1 John chapter 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In the world it's passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. We may hear an objection to this, though. How do we overcome the world when we are hated? Many Christians don't prosper in this hate, right? And yet here's the answer. Our overcoming is regarding, again, our biggest problem, our separation from God. The Holy, Spirit intent, the Holy Spirit's intent is to conform us to the likeness of Christ, the Son of God, to whom and with whom we are co-heirs with Him. And this is good. This is our greatest good. Here Paul in Romans 28, 8, 28-30, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined and to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Church, as we are conformed to the image of Christ by the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we will be hated as He promised and as He was. And as we are conformed, we will also grow in hatred of sin and loving of righteousness and loving one another. We have His best in this hour because the Holy Spirit also binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted, broken for the grief of sin, Hear Isaiah when Israel was in captivity in verse 61.1, testifying of this, saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. He breaks and heals us because we are born of God, sealed by the Spirit as our indication of adoption. And many, many more things, brothers and sisters. His anointing abides in us and teaches us all things. 1 John 2, 25-26. We have an advocate with the Father. 
and therefore we have confidence in the day of judgment. We do not fear the day of judgment because we are born of God. And the world is enslaved to fear of death because of this coming judgment. But we are not. We have an advocate at the right hand of the Father, and we have His Spirit signing us as children of God, purchased by Christ and being conformed, changed into the likeness of Christ. This keeps us as born of God. And lastly, the Holy Spirit unites the bride of Christ. The Spirit testifies in us and in one another that it not be a singular, private revelation given to error and man's own proclivities, but that it is testified among us. Remember, Christ said, my sheep will know my voice, and we will know each other by this testimony. One alone by himself on an island of his own understanding will easily be swept away, but not the flock of Christ, gathered together in one accord, holding fast the testimony given by the Spirit. Remember this, the Spirit will only testify the words given by the Father, such that if another testifies something different, you may discern this lie, even as Paul said, if another comes to you with another gospel, let him be cursed. Galatians 1.8 And though the world will hate us for being in Christ, the Holy Spirit keeps us as Christ promised. And though Christ returned to the Father, He is appealing for us as our high priest. Church, we have God's best, us who live in the final hour. As we go out preaching a message of peace before Christ, before the world, calling the world to repentance, some will hear and be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, and some will hate you. And take heart, He will hold you fast. And finally, in conclusion, if we know we are to be hated, and yet God gives us His Spirit to make us born of God, what can we say in response? Have we supposed that God has not given us His best in the Holy Spirit and dwelling? Let us repent and rejoice at the riches of His mercy upon us, that He would give us His Spirit, us who would never choose Him apart from it. And have we in hardness of heart suppose we do not depend on Him? Let us repent, pleading again for hearts of flesh. Knowledge alone will not bring us to God. And have we loved the love of the world, despising the love of God? For the love of God is to love His Word and His commandments. Let us repent. Be like Mary at Jesus' feet, bringing tears of repentance. We do this in faith, knowing a broken and contrite heart He will not cast out. And have we despaired at the hating of the world and been tempted to soften our conviction? Be strengthened. The Jesus we worship is Lord over all, the Son of God. The movements against our faith will come politely and quietly with all the trappings of niceness. Lest we become friends of the world's lusts and become enemies of God, let us cling fast to Him who holds us fast. And have we despaired at our lack of victory over sins indwelling? Be certain, as the Spirit works in us, He will complete His work. You do war and I do war against sin and repentance all the same as He brings it to our conscience. And He will lay the axe at the root of sin. And have we heard and supposed ourselves righteous and not needing to be born of God? Repent 
and cling to the cross and to Christ for your righteousness. For without him, your good deeds are but filthy rags before a God who gave us his son. Let's pray.